Mountains and waters right now are the actualization of the ancient Buddha way. Each abiding in its phenomenal expression realizes completeness. Because mountains and waters have been active since the empty eon, they are alive at this moment. Because they have been the self since before form arose, they are emancipation realization. Because mountains are high and broad, the way of riding the clouds is always reached in the mountains. The inconceivable power of soaring in the wind comes freely from the mountains. Walking on walking, underfoot, earth turns. Streams and mountains never stay the same. Good morning. Is the volume okay? Okay, a little loud. Not loud. Oh, okay. It's good to be here. Good to see old friends and new friends. The first reading was the opening lines of Dogen's essay, Mountains and Water Sutra. The version I read was translated by Kaz Tanahashi. The second was the last lines of Gary Snyder's poem, Endless Streams and Mountains. I live in a place renowned for its mountains and rivers. On uncloudy days, two snow-capped mountains watch over the city of Portland. To the east, Mount Hood, elevation 11,249, and to the north, Mount St. Helens, elevation 8307. The latter used to be about 1,200 feet taller, but in 1980, its top blew off, spewing forth rocks and lava, leaving a huge crater where the peak used to be, and killing 57 people. They had been warned that an eruption was imminent, but they refused to believe that something that had seemed so immovable, so permanent, could undergo such a violent transformation. It is predicted that an eruption will happen again within the next 300 years, and Mount Hood is also classified as an active volcano. These are not the only mountains visible from the Portland area. On clear days at higher elevations in the city, you can see Mount Adams across the river in Washington, elevation 12,281, peaking through the hills to the northeast. And on very clear days, from a select few locations in the city's tallest hills, you can see Mount Rainier, 140 miles to the north outside Seattle, the biggest of them all at 14,411 feet. Perhaps this is why the poet Gary Snyder, who attended college in Portland and who now lives in a remote region of the Sierra Nevada range in California, wrote, we live under the authority of mountains. It is no coincidence that Snyder, who lived in Japan for much of the 1960s, is a longtime student of Dogen. Portland is also famous for its rivers and the bridges that cross them. 
the Willamette River, which stretches nearly 300 miles north from central Oregon and bisects the heart of Portland, and the Columbia River, which originates in British Columbia and runs south and then west for 1,200 miles to the Pacific Ocean. The two rivers converge north of the city, one of the largest confluences of rivers in the United States and a place of cultural and spiritual significance for the indigenous people who inhabited the area before the arrival of Europeans and then white Americans. And if you go east from Portland into the Columbia River Gorge, you can see how the river carved its way through the mountains over millions of years. With waterfalls and jagged cliffs and thick forest, it is some of the most spectacular scenery in the world. There are also numerous smaller but significant rivers in the area, many with Native American names, such as the Clackamas and the Tualatin. Oregon has long been proud of its environmental consciousness, and I'd like to think that it is the spirit of these mountains and rivers, predating the arrival of humanity in the Western Hemisphere, that helps keep us in humble harmony with Mother Nature. Alas, Houston has no mountains. <laughs> there is a road named West Mountain Houston, but if it leads to a mountain, I never found it. <laughs> However, Houston does have water, lots of water. Sometimes so much water that it jumps the banks of the many streams and bayous that flow into Galveston Bay and the Gulf of Mexico. There's nothing like a massive flood to help keep us humble at least for a little while, before we get, go back to paving over the prairie. When the abbot asked me to give a Dharma talk on this date, she also suggested that I study the Mountains and River Sutra, or as it is also known, the Mountains and Water Sutra, written by Dogen in 1240, and one of the more elegant essays in the 75-chapter collection of his essays called the Shobo Genzo. She didn't say that my talk had to be on the Mountains and River Sutra, and I truly do not feel qualified to do that at this time. But because I have been studying it, I'm going to use some examples from it to help illustrate the real topic of this talk, which is impermanence. Fortunately, I have this little book by Norman Fisher, Zen teacher and former abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center, to help me understand what Dogen is trying to tell us. The book consists of talks Norman gave at the Upaya Zen Center in Santa Fe in 2012, with suggested ways to put the teachings into daily practice by Kuya Minigyu, a Zen priest in British Columbia. The first thing I learned is that the Mountains and River Sutra is not a sutra in the traditional sense. The word sutra is usually reserved for the discourses of Shakyamuni Buddha. Dogen is not saying that his essay is a sutra. He is saying that the mountains and rivers themselves are the sutra because they perfectly express the teachings of the historical Buddha. Dogen may have been inspired by Song Dynasty poet Sudong Bo, who after meditating all night composed this verse. The stream with its sounds is his long broad tongue, the looming mountain, his wide awake body. Throughout the night, song after song, how can I speak at dawn? Norman says that Sudang Bo is implying the sound of the stream is the essence of Buddhist teaching. And the Mountains and Rivers Sutra is Dogen's attempt to translate the profound teachings of mountains and rivers into words. As Joan, ha Joan Halifax, abbot of the Upaya Monastery, noted in a commentary, 
In Chinese Taoism, mountains were and are viewed as living, breathing, sacred beings. From the Taoist perspective, the energy of the mountain is made of its primordial energy that existed since before the beginning of time. This energy is consolidated in the mountain, momentarily fixed, yet actually dynamic in its form. Think of Mount St. Helens. In Chinese and Japanese culture, mountains are associated with meditation and purification. Dogen writes that the mountains belong to those who love them, and we belong to the mountains. Another contemporary, contemporary Zen teacher, Shohaku Akamura, observes that Zen temples are traditionally named after mountains, even if they are in the middle of a big city. So to go to a place of practice is to go to a sacred mountain. A Sangha is a mountain, Okamura writes. For practitioners, it is not only mountains, but this whole world, this reality, our entire lives, including self and environment. All this belongs to, the, all this belongs to us, those who love it, who practice. Norman Fisher suggests that Dogen was probably also thinking of another old Chinese saying, when I first began to practice, mountains were mountains, rivers were rivers. As I trained, mountains were not mountains, rivers were not rivers. Now that I am established in the way, mountains are once more mountains and rivers are once more rivers. In the first instance, we see life only through our conventional dualistic conditioning. Then through practice, we begin to realize the nature of impermanence, which can be disturbing, if not terrifying, though it also means that everything, including our suffering, will pass. And then, as we settle into practice, we see there is just life, mountains and rivers being mountains and rivers in their pristine beauty. As Norman interprets it, Dogen is saying that Zen practice is nothing more than appreciating life as it is and living it fully every moment. Unlike other Zen teachers, then and now, he is not saying that Zen is a path to enlightenment. For Dogen, Zen practice is enlightenment, and it is happening right here, right now. According to Norman, Dogen's teaching is that the impermanent is that impermanence is the only thing that is not impermanent. Norman immediately follows this by declaring that he doesn't know, he can't possibly know, and anything he writes is misleading but he allows that it makes sense that in some way we have always been here and always will be. He writes, quote, we might lose our body. We will lose our body and the perceptions that depend on it. We will lose our memory and a coherent sense of an identity that depends on this body. But the vital energy we are made of will not be lost. That part of us has always been, always will be. Tension Roshi Reb Anderson, the honorary founder of the Houston Zen Center and my original teacher, wrote a piece that was published in the Soto Zen journal Dharma Eye in March of 2023 called The Fragile Robe of Liberation. In the piece, Tenshin Roshi talks about an okesa, a priest's robe he's worn for 50 years that has been falling apart for decades and continues to need ongoing repair. Yet when people see this robe, they often think it is beautiful. Tenshin Roshi uses the robe as a metaphor for the awesome truth and beauty of impermanence. When I wear this robe, people have an opportunity to open their eyes and heart to the teaching that all compounded things fall apart, the robe and me. If we can endure this awesome falling apart, we can experience its beauty. However, 
if we can't tolerate things falling apart, we close the door on reality because compounded things are falling apart. They are not falling apart into annihilation. They are falling into bits and pieces of the entire universe. The way we are falling into bits and pieces and becoming the whole universe, and the way the universe is becoming us falling apart, is our original nature. This is the reality of life and death. If we can be present and endure the terror of this tremendous process of falling apart and becoming, which is the reality of our life, we will witness the beauty of life and death. As long as we can tolerate the feeling of trembling and awe in the face of reality, this process will come to us as beauty. Everything is turning into infinite parts all day long, and all day long, infinite parts are turning into things. This process is our original, true nature. It offers us an opportunity to develop the ability to live in accord with the terrifying beauty of wreckage and renewal. In our original nature, there is no beginning or end. Nothing is completely intact in and of itself. We are all compounded things subject to wreckage and ruin. It is in the midst of our fragility that truth comes to us as beauty. In that spirit, <clears throat> whoops, <laughs> just a second. In this spirit, I thought I might show you my old rock suit, which I began working on 25 years ago under the patient guidance. At times, it was more than guidance <laughs> of Galen Roshi. Note the orange juice stain <laughs> on the envelope. There's also a tire tread on here, but it's faded with time. <laughs> the various other stains on the rock suit itself, disintegration, and of course, the all important safety pin. <laughs> Beautiful, right? Wabi-sabi, as the Japanese call it. This is Reb's calligraphy with my Dharma name, Dharma Moon, precept song, and an honor he bequeathed me to live up to, a true person of no rank. I can't read it, but I know, I know what it says. When I don't wear it very often anymore, but on those occasions when I do, I feel like I've been around a while. <laughs> Wait just a minute here. Sorry. Beautiful rock suit I'm wearing now is made of silk. And it was sewn by Reverend Vicky and given to me as a gift from the Sangha about 10 years ago because I think they were tired of looking at the safety pin. <laughs> they are equally beautiful and equally impermanent, just like the one who wears them. Tension Roshi continues. The full experience of beauty and truth includes feeling and accepting our human vulnerability, but experiencing our, our vulnerability may be frightening. We may feel that the universe is going to overwhelm us and gobble us up. The universe <coughs> consumes us. That is half reality, half of reality. The other half is that we consume the universe. The universe is vulnerable to us too. This reciprocal vulnerability is our true nature. It is awesome. 
In the beginning of that awe, beauty is glistening. As the moon poet, Saigyo, said, this leaky, tumble-down grass hut left opening for the moon, and I gazed at it, all the while it was mirrored in a teardrop fallen on my sleeve. Back to Dogen. I've talked about the spiritual power of mountains, but what about water? Dogen writes, water is neither strong nor weak, neither wet nor dry, neither moving nor still, neither cold nor hot, neither being nor non-being, neither delusion nor awakening. Frozen, it is harder than a diamond. Who could break it? Melted, it is softer than milk. Who could break it? Water is everywhere. It rolls down off the mountain in waterfalls and carves its own valley on its way to the ocean, the source of all life. Our bodies are 55 to 60% water. Even the rocks and lava spit out by Mount St. Helens contain water. Water is always in motion, always changing form on earth or in the sky. In the immortal words of Lao Tzu, by way of Bruce Lee, <laughs> be water. <laughs> but how should we be water or be mountains and be in accord with everything like the sages of old, even, even as our species is rapidly despoiling the planet with pollution, if not destroying it through climate change, leading to droughts, floods, and fires? As Norman Fisher observes, the planet isn't worried. It will eventually take care of the problem, meaning us. <laughs> Dogen's essay includes this koan. The green mountains are always walking. The stone woman gets up dancing. The dance with humanity may be coming to an end. Is this so-called sixth extinction already in process what we wish for our children and grandchildren and their descendants? As Fisher says at the end of the book, but how do we not worry about the human world? I'm very worried. I'm worried about my friends. I'm worried about relatives and family. I'm worried about myself. I'm worried about our country. I'm worried about other countries. Where are human beings going? As many problems that it seems like we have, I have the feeling we are coming to a human crisis. We can't continue indulging this foolishness. Let's say there are two kinds of worry. The kind of worry that makes us anxious and upset, and the kind of worry that we want to have. Compassion, the activity of wisdom. Compassion is not being unconcerned. Compassion is exactly being concerned. If someone dies, I want to cry, even though I realize that it's just the way things are. Something comes, something goes. This goes on all the time, so it really is okay. The loss of a person in our lives is okay, on the one hand. On the other hand, I'm human. I naturally feel sorrow. I want to cry. I need to cry. Both sides are expressed in the teachings. There is a false image of the sage who wanders forth, blithely, happily thinking, alive or dead, who knows. But that image does not express the life that we live. That is not what practice proposes. Practice proposes that knowing that all is well is not incompatible with, wor with worrying about our peers.
attention equally extend to every being and place with the 